Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Welcome back, one and all. This is the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. I'm Ryan Aris, and as usual, I'm joined here in the Knox Cellar by Joe Boot and Nathan Oblack. Guys, it is good to be together for another afternoon of podcasting with you. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Been good looking to be back. forward to this. Mm-hmm. And we're, uh, we're revisiting the, uh, the subject that we, we left partway through last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, a discussion blow by blow, chapter by chapter of Joe's newest book, Ruler of Kings. Making uh, sure not to give away the entire book. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it's it's a longer book than we can cover in you know two fifty minute sessions. So there's lots to lots to continue to discover. Uh, for those of you who were listening last week, or for those of you who were not, over at EzraPress.ca, mm. there is a discount code for this book, Ruler of Kings. You, uh, you if you put the code podcast in at the at your checkout, then uh, you'll save 20% off your purchase. Mm-hmm. And we're going to leave that up for uh, up until next week, until yeah. next World Be Wednesday. Yeah, it's been great to see people use that code from mm-hmm. all over the place. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, Nate, any more announcements? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's hard to believe, but uh, we're less than three weeks away from our uh, local Mission of God conference here in the Niagara region. Woo! Mm-hmm. It came up quickly, but uh, tickets are continuing to uh, sell out really, really quick. And uh, this year's conference, Utopianism versus the Kingdom of God. And uh, we've got a great lineup of speakers. We've got Joe, we've got Andre Shooten. He's our fellow for law and civil discourse. And coming from the UK this year, Graham Leach, our fellow for biblical economics. And for, any, for anyone that's ever been to one of our Mission of God conferences, um, they'll, they'll tell you that the speakers have been great, but really the, the highlight is uh, the fellowship you experience being with like-minded believers for, for an entire day. And I, I mean, we, we have people coming from every denomination, every walk of life, and really finding unity and, and understanding that Christ is Lord over all of life. So it's, it's a wonderful thing, and uh, we've always had great feedback uh, on that point. And uh, you'll want to get your tickets now. Uh, the conference is mm-hmm. coming quickly. And they're available on our website at EzraInstitute.com. And we have just a few spots left uh, in our 10-day flagship training program, the H. Evan Runner International Academy. And that's happening June 5th to the 15th in Golden, B.C. And, uh, you know, guys, we, we've got some of the best donors around. Uh, we have several of them asking us, you know, have you filled those spots? We'd, we'd really like to provide some financial assistance to those who, who need it uh, coming to the program. So there is still assistance available if, uh, if, if you want to jump in before the program uh, has sold out. And so fill out the application form on our website, and uh, you can see if uh, you qualify for financial support uh, for the program. And, and again, do it quickly as it's uh, very close to being filled. Or if you're one of those who's interested mm-hmm. in offering financial support for, yep. for a delegate. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, great. Thank you. Okay, so without uh, further ado, let's uh, let's get back in where we left off. This is a six-chapter book. We stopped just short of that number of perfection, and we 
we tackled the uh, the first three chapters in last week's episode. With the Lord be on our side, we're going to take the uh, the latter half of the book uh, in this this episode today. That's your challenge, Joe. Yes, <laughs> it's your choice. <laughs> choice of a new generation. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna have to keep it brief here. Mm. So, Joe, on uh, on chapter four, we'll dive right in. This chapter is called "Authority, Sovereignty, and the Heresy of Liberal Democracy," and I just want to uh, bring up a point that you you make in this chapter, and then see if you can uh, draw out some further implications from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you you write that uh, without a received authority as the basis of orthodoxy, there can be no heresy. Uh, the uh, the point that I take from that is that. You know, because that concept of authority is inescapable, uh, it necessarily follows that the idea of orthodoxy, the idea of heresy, are also inescapable. Uh, we just fill those categories with different content depending on what our stand, what our authority is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the important point that uh, that you're drawing out here in this chapter is that heresy can have uh, important implications. And those implications can only be seen outside of the sphere of the church. Mm. You know, we're, we're used mm. to thinking of heresy in terms of you know, denying the doctrine of the Trinity or such things. Mm-hmm. But heresy can have serious social consequences outside the church, and sometimes it can only be, really be seen mm. uh, outside of that sphere. Can you just uh, comment on the idea of heresy more fully and how it is that sincere Christians can be guilty of it. Yeah. Well, it does sound like a bit of a shocking chapter title, I admit, and um, it's a, supposed to really, mm-hmm. to kind of provoke a little bit of a, a reaction, the, the heresy of liberal democracy. I've never um, known you to be provocative before. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm into this. So uh, the word heresy itself, of course, um, in its origin, means to choose for oneself. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I, what I try and show in this chapter, as you actually quite eloquently pointed out there, is that the we are very accustomed to thinking of heresy only as an ecclesiastical concern. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we think of church councils, we think of uh, popes. Uh, we think of um, heresy trials, we think of, of ecclesiastical concerns, and we don't tend to think about culture, politics, and those sorts of things with, in reference to heresy. Whereas actually that's a very modern phenomenon, because in the past the whole issue of, of heresy had very significant cultural, political, uh, social implications. That's why it was taken that much more seriously. Now, the book is not a call for us to return to heresy trials in the in the in the public space and religious wars and so on um, of, the, told you, of the post reformation, <laughs> <laughs> and, and we make that quite clear. But the 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 issue, and that of course was very much anyway. Those were those were a product of what was going on um, with the uh, well, especially in the post reformation era anyway, uh, and all the struggles that were happening between the Roman and the Protestant nations, which is a, a long and complicated history to discuss. But the point is, is that we we don't tend to take heresy very seriously anymore, even in the church. The point I'm making in the book is that 
we very much associate that term only with the life of the church. But I'm saying that actually when, um, when we do have heretical ideas, or her, her, and by heretical, that choosing for oneself, that lack of submission to authority, to biblical authority uh, in various areas of our lives, very often it only manifests itself outside the life of the church. Um, in other areas of our lives. So, for example, uh, when we think about the fact that the creeds talk about Christ as the as the judge, um, I t- take a, just a short bit of time discussing, you know, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and the agreement that they have around Christ as creator and judge of the living and the dead, basically as sovereign, the sovereign of the world. That's affirmed in the creeds. And obviously, it's taught in the Bible. Now, if we uh, if we merely ecclesiasticize that doctrine, it's not that difficult for people to say, "Yeah, Jesus is Lord," because mm-hmm. He's Lord in my heart. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, again, heart defined narrowly. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, who would argue with that, right? <laughs> and and Lord in the church, right? Although uh, maybe we've seen in the last couple of years, maybe a lot of people don't think he's lord over the church but mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. maybe we say he's lord inside of the church institute mm-hmm. during those times that the church is permitted to meet yes <laughs> yeah. so <Right>. we, <laughs> quite so we confess jesus is lord but actually we show by our attitude uh and posture mm-hmm. in culture in political life that we don't actually mm-hmm. really believe it or mm-hmm. m- much of the time we don't really believe it so Actually, a, a choosing for oneself, a, 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 a heretical posture mm-hmm. with regard to the Lordship of Christ doesn't really get exposed on in, in the life of the church mm-hmm. on this issue. Right. Um, you might uh, be hauled before the elders uh, if, uh, if you're a church member and you, you start denying the, the sonship, the eternal sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity in the life of the church, and mm. you might be placed under church discipline. But if you... Um, if you vote for a Marxist party mm-hmm. or you support abortion mm-hmm. uh, or you uh, think that the issue of human sexuality and identity is, no, is, is of no account or you think that the uh, state has the right to unilaterally shut down the sacraments and the preaching and the worship of the church uh, indefinitely, um, well you're actually, I would argue there, in the grip of choosing for oneself and, and, a, and an inadequate understanding of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Mm. So that's where I was trying to go with that, is to show that um, when I talk about the heresy of liberal democracy, if people have bought into, as Christians, and have thought to themselves, well, you know, liberal democracy is the Christian view, or it's the the status quo is perfectly acceptable uh, or this is this is uh, there are there are all kinds of views for uh, society and culture for Christians that are all just as acceptable as the other you might be a Marxist you might be a liberal Democrat uh, you might be a socialist um, these are all uh, you might be a conservative etc these are all um, perfectly acceptable views uh, because there's all these differences of opinion all over the place on politics, and therefore we don't need mm-hmm. to even try and come to a clear understanding of what the Lordship of Jesus Christ means over all of life, mm-hmm. including the cultural and political. 
So we can actually, whilst confessing Jesus is Lord, not really believe it and actually hold to, and maybe we'll come to this in a moment, basically um, baptize liberal democracy as essentially the, the biblical Christian view without really understanding it or analyzing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, find that actually we're just in the grip of choosing for ourselves. We're in the grip of a heretical idea about the Lordship of Christ. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting just uh, commenting from personal experience. You know, um, for those that know me, my background was in public education years ago. And I came to the recognition that, you know, I would profess Jesus Christ is Lord. But once I got into the classroom, the public school classroom, I started recognizing within myself that uh, I was you know, putting his lordship aside, because this is a pluralistic classroom. Mm -hmm. So I have to recognize that, you know, these students in front of me, their families, they don't all acknowledge the lordship of Christ. So I certainly can't teach them that way. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was something I recognized personally. I think it's a a really good self-assessment for people to ask as they go into the workplace. Is Christ Lord in your heart, in your conversations when you go into the workplace. Especially in mm-hmm. terms of, um, I would imagine for you, Nathan, in the classroom, you know, the whole issue of the world and life view mm-hmm. uh, under the Lordship of Christ, right. that you found yourself, you know, in uh, the discussions we've had in the past, and maybe you you might want to illustrate it, but mm-hmm. uh, not actually teaching from within uh, the, the paradigm of a Christian world and life oh, view, but ended up teaching within a completely humanistic paradigm. Absolutely. But as long as they the students knew I went to church on Sunday, that seemed to be sufficient. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I think that probably sums it up for quite a lot of for Christian sure. people yeah, right? as right. well. As long as people know I love Jesus and I and mm-hmm. I take you know opportunities where they may arise for evangelism, right. then then I fulfilled all that's required in terms of uh, right. you know a Christian understanding. Right. So <clears throat> what I try and unpack in this chapter then, um having defined sort of the heresy and stuff like that is to talk a little bit about uh, this, this, this uh, phrase we have today that defines a perspective, uh, liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that those two words have been joined together because democracy really, uh, strictly speaking, um, is merely a description of the way in which in the Western tradition uh, we have come to install uh, into government, into civil government, those who represent us. So in yeah. the uh, our participation of the of the of the governed in their own government and uh, in, through the election of those who will represent our interests in the parliament or in Congress or whatever it is, uh, we do so in a democratically. It's mm-hmm. it's a vote. Yeah. Um, That's really the strict meaning of democracy, but we've got this additional uh, term now that we've joined to democracy. And I think maybe it was last week we talked about the whole misnomer of a democratic society. That's right. Which is to say, because democracy really is about the way you install government, uh, civil government into power, to say, therefore, we live in a democratic society is reductionist because most of the structures within society are not democratic. Right. Mm-hmm. The family is not a democracy. The business is not a democracy. The church is not a democracy. Uh, and um, even with the in the Anglosphere, uh, even our political government is not the direct type of democracy demanded by the French Revolution, uh, which is to say 
we don't hold referenda on every subject, mm-hmm. right? It's not uh, the, 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 our representatives aren't coming back to us with ev- for every decision for a vote yeah. um, because you are electing uh, leaders to an office. And then, of course, at the next election, you have an opportunity to express your approval or disapproval of the way you've been represented. So that needs careful qualification uh, itself, um, that society is not democratic, even if we uh, install our political leaders democratically. But this term liberal, liberal democracy, um, is something I spend a good deal of time on in the book. And I I just want to um, highlight the most important points. We don't, as, as Nathan said, we don't want to uh, give away the entirety of the book here. Uh, but the the fundamental issue in terms of uh, liberalism is that we're we're talking about um, an enlightenment political tradition um, that has been has basically descended from the political texts of rationalistic political philosophers. Hobbes, Locke, Spinoza, Rousseau, Kant, and others. Um, And there are basically three core elements or three core axioms that undergird this new, you know, liberal democratic thinking. And um, it's interesting the way in which even today, when you look at the, what used to be a conservative party, what you're really looking at now are socially democratic parties. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we've talked about this as well. Yeah. Conservative, you know, that's, that's the name that they use to register, but that's not, that's not necessarily the ideology that they support. Right. We've also talked about how modern conservatives simply conserve what's in place at the moment. That's That's right. right. Yeah. 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 Because in, in part conservatism has surrendered its religious foundations. Right. Right. So, Mm. uh, you know, we've talked before about the fact that the kingdom of God has both a, it concerns both constancy and change. Mm-hmm. So you have both a, con, a, a conserving element uh, and a progressive element mm-hmm. in the sense that we we believe that we can always be in reform and that uh, we can be continuously moving um, on the basis of the constancy of God's law word for creation mm-hmm. in terms of a more consistent application of that. Um, but fundamentally... There are three core axioms that undergird the liberal in liberal democracy that come that came down to us in the West through this rationalistic tradition. The first is the supposed availability and sufficiency of reason. The second um, is the idea of the perfectly free and perfectly equal individual. And then the third is basically the idea that um, obligation arises only from choice. Uh, obligation arises from choice. So you've got three fundamental ideas uh, that have become basic to, and this is why it's important for Christians to understand it, so that they so that they recognize that uh, we're not dealing here with a Christian philosophy of the human person or of reality. Um, in fact, the uh, Jewish philosopher, uh, Yoram Hazoni, who I quote a number of times in Ruler of Kings, mm-hmm. Uh, he notes this about the, these three core axioms, and he says that there is nothing in this liberal system that requires you or even encourages you to also adopt a commitment to God, the Bible, family, or nation. It's all about reason, the, the abstract idea of a, of a, a, a perfectly free, per, perfectly equal individual. So this is the basis of this sort of contractarian political theories. 
and that your obligation only arises from choice. So uh, we uh, we find that um, the often heard claim that liberal democracy is there to protect traditional beliefs and historic Christian institutions and uh, it, 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 it separates those and protects them in this sphere of privacy, right, over here. It's the liberal democratic tradition is going to protect those in this sphere of privacy. And ostensibly, that's to ensure that nobody is coerced into being a, a, a Christian or have a Christian view of the family. Um, Horzoni points out, he says, everywhere it has gone, the liberal system has brought about the disillusion of these fundamental traditional institutions. Uh, and so basically... He the the argument in Ruler of Kings, and I'm going to give you one one more quote from Hazoni in a moment, um, is that the liberal in democracy is the ideology that Christians are buying into when they fail to be critical mm. in it in a biblical sense when they fail to engage from a scriptural world and life viewpoint of view the idea of liberal democracy with this tendency that we have to just baptize it as Christian and accept the status quo. And this is what um, uh, Hazoni says uh, about uh, this form of government. I'm quoting to you now uh, from Ruler of Kings. Uh, this is Yoram Hazoni. He says, quote, Liberalism is not a form of government at all. It is a system of beliefs taken to be axiomatic from which a form of government can supposedly be deduced. In other words, it is a system of dogmas about the nature of human beings, reason, and the sources of moral obligations that bind us. There are no grounds for the claim that liberalism is merely a system of neutral rules or a procedural system that can make traditional political and religious structures work all the better while leaving them intact. Liberalism is a substantive belief system that provides an alternative foundation that has not coexisted with earlier politi political traditions rooted in the Bible. As we were told, it would. It has rather cut these uh, this earlier tradition to ribbons. Um, and um, Samuel Burgess, who wrote an excellent book mm -hmm. on conservatism, um, put it this way, and I quote, he says, both liberalism and socialism have sought to exorcise religious belief from politics in their own way, only to replace it with their own religious confessions. And that is the point, which, of course, we we address frequently on our program, mm -hmm. uh, which is the myth of neutrality and the notion that somehow liberal democracy is um, the uh, essentially Christian position that we're all obligated to adopt. But fundamentally, liberalism has an anti-Christian, non-Christian view of the human person and of human society. Uh, so because we reject the liberalism in democracy does not mean that we're proposing or ruler of kings is proposing the overthrow of dem democratic institutions. No. Quite the contrary. It's saying, though, that we must recognize that the, the progressive liberal agenda, and I have some discussion in the book about the various uses of the term liberal in America and in Europe that have differed. So the old classical liberal tradition and so forth and the difference between that and today's progressivism. Um, but but fundamentally, this this rationalistic idea of the human person um, lies at the root of where we are today politically, and um, 
we're not in the place of quite in the place yet of the radical French doctrine of vox populi, vox dei, you know, mm -hmm. the voice of the people is the voice of God. But fundamentally, we've put the state within liberal democracies in the position of having the voice of God. It is ideologically committed. It means to push Christianity first into the private sphere and then, frankly, push it out of social and cultural life altogether. Mm -hmm. Great. And this is how... Just as you're speaking, this is how we get purported conservatives like someone like David French saying mm. that drag queen story hours for your kids in the library are the price that we pay for living in a democracy. This sort of, I don't know, this isn't his terminology, but it's my characterization. It's sort of like the customer is always right kind of mm -hmm. democracy. Yeah. Yeah. The vox populi, vox dei light. Yeah, it's not the price we pay mm. for living in a democracy. No. It's the price we pay for living in a paganized, secularized culture. Right, right. Well, nothing to do with living in a democracy. Mm -hmm. um, it has to do with the ideology and the religious mm -hmm. ideology that drives mm -hmm. um, uh, people's cultural and political views today. Mm -hmm. uh, and to some, we're supposed to accept that reality. Yeah, yeah. And the notion that if you if you were to oppose that you're somehow being anti-democratic. Nothing right. could be further from the truth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, let's move on to chapter five. Mm -hmm. And uh, that cha chapter is titled The Church, the State, and the Kingdom of God. And uh, in this chapter, Joe, you you address uh, the Christian's calling in regard to politics. And uh, just this past <coughs> week, I was speaking with a, a pastor who was at a, a, a meeting with many other uh, pastors within his denomination, and he was sharing that the general discussion was around you know, keeping politics out of the pulpit and, um, you know, just some of, some of the things he was hearing, you know, it, it, it's a, a neutral sphere, you know, all the things we've heard before. It's, it's a distraction. We need to focus on the gospel. We need to focus on spiritual matters. I'm doing air quotes right now. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like the, the last thing Christians are to do are, you know, we're, we're not called to inaugurate some kind of clergy-governed theocracy. Um, so I wonder if you could expand on that, and even, um, you know, let's hear your your response to those kinds of sentiments, Joe. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, when, you, when anybody says, let's keep politics out of the pulpit, what they are doing is politicizing the church. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, what they've and and most of these men will be leading radically politicized churches. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the notion that you would dare to bring the word of God to bear on people's political opinions from the pulpit is too risky. Right. Yeah. Um, so you're really dealing with a couple of problems. The first one is, of course, that many of these pastors themselves uh, do not have a clearly developed Christian world and life view. Um, they are pietistic. Um, they are very often well-meaning, but they are pietistic uh, uh, people who essentially believe that the Christianity is fundamentally about another world, mm -hmm. about another life, right. about a so-called spiritual life mm -hmm. um, that has to do with a future kingdom um, that uh, has bears little resemblance to life in the world today, and that our task is to snatch as many people from the fires as possible to get them to heaven, to this other world. Um, and so you're dealing with a fundamental worldview problem there, because, of course, in, 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 in that view, um, 
the if if the faith is fundamentally about is, is otherworldly, then of course political cultural life um, fade in their right. significance. Creation yeah. itself. This is the radical wedge mm-hmm. that we've talked mm-hmm. about so many times before. Mm-hmm. The radical wedge is driven between redemption and creation. The church becomes a re- so-called redemptive institution in an in a, in a in a redemptive kingdom. Um, and creation itself and God's law and norms of creation, his purposes for all of creation and the to- to- totality of his world, as we see in Romans 8, all of that fades from view. So that's the first problem. And then the second problem you have um, is that along with that um, dualism mm-hmm. comes a, a failure to recognize that the surest way to politicize your church is to fail to preach the word of God um, and apply it to political and cultural life. So all that happens is that these churches are filled with people who have views and ideas. That's why I talked about we started with that to the concept of heresy mm-hmm. and the idea right. of you know where it manifests itself outside of the church is because you've got all of these people who you know we've even we've even got um, dare I say MPPs um, in our own region right. who are members of churches who profess Orthodox Reformed confessions. Um, but can't see the wood for the trees when it comes to political life. Mm-hmm. They don't understand sphere sovereignty. They don't mm-hmm. recognize the lordship of Christ. Um, they certainly don't apply it uh, and uh, and hide behind political platitudes. Now mm-hmm. that is that's common. And I would say you've got you've got essentially Christians in often in those areas of political life who themselves are guilty of heresy that they 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 carefully avoid being accused of ecclesiastically. Because they'll say, "Well, I'm an I've, I'm I believe in the Heidelberg Catechism, right?" Um, but when it come, when as soon as it moves outside the the arena of the church, heretical ideas are fine. Mm-hmm. Christ's lordship doesn't mean anything. God's mm-hmm. kingdom uh, uh, and creation itself disappears, and we instead we have the le- liberal Democrat gen- democratic general will. And unfortunately, many pastors are happy with this status quo. So. They will. Uh, we've. I've. I've quoted Zudema before on on the program. How he talks about the ecclesiasticization of the Bible calls forth the secularization of the world. Mm-hmm. So what these pastors are unwitt- unwittingly doing very often is, in their attempts to sound pious, are actually secularizing the very world they claim to love and want to evangelize. Mm-hmm. And that's a tragic situation. Yeah. Well, and what's amazing to me, too, is this is in the context of Bill C-6 here in right. Canada. Yeah. Right? So, C-4. So, sorry, yes, yeah, C-4. Um, you know, this is, a, this is a law now in Canada that uh, makes it illegal to preach biblical sexuality if any, anyone objects to it. And then to claim that politics is neutral, it's, it's quite unbelievable. Yes, I mean, if you, if for for any pastor, I was actually on a on another show today with a with a high Anglican priest in England, believe mm-hmm. it or not, mm-hmm. and uh, we were talking a bit about this, and I was explaining to him that for a pastor or a Christian counselor in Canada now to receive somebody and to teach them and instruct them and pray with them on a consistent basis, whether they were a child or a consenting adult, mm-hmm. to conform their lives to Mm-hmm. The teaching of Christ on marriage, the teaching of the Bible on human sexuality and identity, I would be committing a crime, right. punishable for up to five years in prison. And suddenly, all of C four seems to be forgotten for these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
uh, medical made all the medical assistance in dying bill 67 bill c11 mm. all of these they, it's as though they don't exist and we go along our head in the clouds or buried in the sand whichever metaphor you prefer mm -hmm. um as though we are acting christianly when in fact we, we are we are undermining our very ability to even share the gospel mm -hmm. legally um, and I'm sorry to say that those who have said in the past, you know, well, this is not the hill to die on and no, no, no hill ever seems to be for many of these people. Um, and, you know, the, the, the church just needs to submit to the state on this, that and the other and, 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 uh, and, and, and submit, 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 submit. Uh, we don't seem to, uh, I, we can have no confidence that when it comes down to it, these men, these people will actually die on any hill for the truth of the gospel. Mm. Um, you know, they said, well, it's not a gospel issue. It's, there's, again, because of the wedge between creation and redemption, you mm. hear this mantra all of the time, not a gospel issue. Right. Life, and therefore, a, a differing issue. opinions are acceptable. Right. Right. Uh, and Joe Boot, you can't tell everyone what the right decision is. Right. The Lordship of Christ over his church, mm. not a gospel issue. Mm. Right. Uh, the, uh, the, the, you know, uh, abortion, not a gospel issue. Human identity and sexuality, not a gospel issue. Mm. Mm. So, so the, the gospel gets boiled down to uh, a three or four very narrow propositions about my personal beliefs, a sort of Gnostic confession. And that's it. Uh, and and it, it, it doesn't matter. The, and the fact that actually what makes people receptive how the Holy Spirit works is to convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And what enables people to be receptive to the preaching of the good news about redemption in Jesus Christ is a firm grasp on the fact that, as Paul says, I would not know sin but by the law, is that when God's normative structures and laws are preached and made known and applied in culture, people are then brought to an awareness, a consciousness of their, of their sin. The law is like a schoolmaster leading us to Christ, as well as a an, an instrument by which e wickedness and evil is restrained. And these are all concerns that God has in the Older and the Newer Testament. So this kind of reductionism that you've described mm -hmm. is one of the great tragedies afflicting the church. And obviously I do address that in uh, Ruler of Kings as, as, we're trying, as I'm trying to talk about the church, the state, and the kingdom of God. What we, mm. I spend some time doing is defining the church. What is the church? What is the function of the church? What's the role of the church? What is the state? What's the function, role, and calling of the, of the state? And then what's the kingdom of God? And so very importantly, I make sure that people distinguish between the ecclesia and the basileia. That's right. Because the institutional church does not exhaust the biblical understanding of the kingdom of God. And that's another problem that many of these pastors have is that they don't recognize. If you conflate, you see, ecclesia and basileia so that they are identical with one another and exhaust one another, uh, then the church is identified simpliciter with the kingdom and therefore the kingdom of God is not expressed anywhere other than in the institutional life of the church and therefore culture, politics, business, the arts, the sciences, every other area of life, even the family, even the school are non-kingdom issues. They become non-gospel issues, do you see? So that radical truncation uh, is, um, is what we are trying to address, that the kingdom of God is the only totalizing reality in scripture and you can have faithful or apostate churches there are plenty That's of right. churches that are actually outside really the reality of the kingdom of god they are synagogues of satan mm -hmm. no that's uh, that's a very important point that was a real 
game changer to hear you uh, make that point uh, in, in my own thinking. And it, uh, it dovetails nicely. I, I want to keep us ticking along a little bit, but I want to get us through this last chapter. Uh, dovetails nicely with this last, uh, last point or last question that I want to ask on this chapter, chapter six, titled State Absolutism, Sphere Sovereignty, and the Limits of Political Authority. And there's a subsection here that I, that where you I, I articulate ecclesiocracy or theocracy. Mm-hmm. So we, we've talked you know, extensively about the impossibility of neutrality uh, in, uh, in every context, but that extends to the impossibility of a neutral state. Because what, you know, whether they're a monarch or an elected official or whatever it is, the state is made up of people who bring all of their beliefs and convictions and commitments to their work of governing. So we've, you've mentioned, you mentioned in the, in the book that there's an impossibility of actually articulating uh, some notion of a common good uh, without a transcendent standard. Mm-hmm. We all, we've also talked about how an ecclesiocracy is not desirable. That's not the goal. The mm-hmm. church is not the state, should not try to usurp the, the, uh, the work of the state. But theocracy, uh, if I understand you rightly, uh, is unavoidable. Yes. So um, it's interesting how the, the liberal democratic Christian is in a tremendous bind with this whole notion of the common good outside of a distinctly Christian view of politics and outside of a recognition of the relevance of God's law. Because on the one hand, they want a, uh, a unified society around the idea of the good that can only find uh, its root in a transcendent source because the Christian cre- claims to believe in God who is the source of all goodness, mm-hmm. right? righteousness, justice. Um, and at the same time to say, we, well, we want people to be able to live, live as they please, right? Because the, the, the radical equality of the, of the individual, right? The egalitarian idea of, of liberalism. Um, so you've got, you know, this independence, autonomous reason of man. Then you've got uh, this idea of the perfectly free individual, um, and, uh, well, it's, uh, and my obligations arise from my choices, but how can you have a, uh, that kind of anarchic view of the person mm. and yet still have a society built around the common good? The good doesn't define itself. And that's a point that we make in ruler of Kings is, um, who gets to define the good and surely for the Christian, there is none good. Jesus says, but God alone. So only God gets to define what goodness, righteousness, justice actually is, not the social contract, not the general will, um, not the ballot box. If 52% of people vote that um, uh, abortion is good, does that make it so? Mm-hmm. Right. So um, the, uh, th- this, this necessity of a, transcend- a transcendent standard is absolutely vital um, for, uh, as we've steadily discovered as we've been de-Christianizing to hold society together around a set of common values and a set of common commitments, which are basic to the survival of any society. As soon as any social order starts to lose unanimity around its core values, that society is collapsing and will eventually commit suicide. Mm -hmm. 
um, th this is why we're seeing decadence of falling off. It literally means a falling away in, in Western culture, because when you admit polytheism into a society, many gods, many laws, the, the, the seeds of that society's destruction have been sown. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that we want what is often conflated with a theocracy, an ecclesiocracy, because ecclesiocracy, often called theocracy, uh, implies the rule of the church and its officers mm -hmm. in the public affairs of, of civil government. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that is emphatically not what sphere sovereignty teaches or desires, and certainly not what scripture teaches. Um, the, the A Christian social order is not about installing pastors and clergy um, as magistrates and as um, prime minister and as all the politicians running all the affairs of the state. That would be an ecclesiocracy, the notion that the totalitarian notion that the church can swallow the state. And this was, we've talked about before, the conflict that went on between um, church and state in the medieval period um, in the sort of ecclesiastical culture of Christendom. Who was anointing whom? Who was appointing whom? Who mm. was excommunic excommunicating whom? Who was head of the church? These kinds of questions. Um, we recognize the importance of the separation of the jurisdiction and the sovereignty of the role and responsibility of the church and the state, but all under Christ. Right. Yes. And yeah. that's the difference. Mm -hmm. So ecclesiocracy would, uh, in a totalitarian sense, just as in pagan totalitarianism, which is where we are today, see the state as the all-encompassing, all-embracing institution. An ecclesiocracy would see the church as the all-embracing institution, uh, with the state being under its supervision and tutelage and so on. Um, we, we've really, with secularism, fallen back into the pagan view that the state is, we, we, we today believe in a totalitarian state, the state is the ultimate organizing principle, uh, and it relates to all the other aspects of society in a parts-to-whole fashion. And we demonstrate that when we close our churches whenever the state tells us to. That's correct. When we do that, we say we are a part, a lesser part of a greater whole called the state. Now, that's to cave to the pagan view of the state. Uh the principle of sphere sovereignty, which I delineate in Ruler of Kings, step by step shows what it means for the offices that God has established in family, church, state, and so on, to be under Christ, have their own sphere of authority and sovereignty, which is delegated. All offices, in the Christian point of view, are under God. That's why we talk about a prime minister. We talk mm. about civil servants, mm. because they occupy an office of service that was meant to be under God. That's the Anglo-American tradition. That's what it means to serve. That's why the president in the U.S. would take the oath of office on the Bible, still does, used to take it on an open Bible to the law of God, Deuteronomy 27, 28. It's why the our head of state, Queen Elizabeth II, was received the Bible as the royal law and swore to uphold the law and gospel. So it's under Christ, and then there are these different spheres of, an, uh, of authority. And that's what a theocracy means, that it's the rule of God. And to, to conclude, Ryan, and, and to answer your question very directly then, every social order is a theocracy, because every social order has a divinity concept, has thereby a principle of sovereignty um, and has a God. And it might be uh, an Islamic conception. It might be Allah. It might be the um, French revolutionary secular conception, Vox Populi, vo Vox Dei, the voice of the people is God. It might be the state essentially as God, as the source of all sovereignty and law. Um, 
whichever it may be, it is a theocracy. It just depends which God. And, and, and in the same way, every society, social order is theonomic. It, it will impose the law of one God or another. It's always a question of true and false worship. That's right. Uh, God's law or man's law, God's way or man's way. All right. Well, like it or not, we are all theonomists, it sounds like. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate you uh, spending the time to, uh, to work through that. I know that uh, you've got another obligation. Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll end here. Grateful to, to get through that book. You can get it at ezrapress.ca. And I forgot to mention this at the beginning, but uh, we've talked for a little while now about the Ezra Learning Portal. And we've talked about the development that, uh, that, that's, that has been going on there. I'm very pleased to tell you that that is now in beta testing mode. It's out with a, uh, a limited number of testers. If you would like an invite to that, to, to be a beta tester, uh, send us a note. Uh, you contact us through our website. Let us know that you're interested in beta testing the Ezra Learning Portal, and we will uh, get that out to you. Joe. And, and sign Nate, up for our Mission of God conference. And sign up for the Mission of God conference. Yes, yeah. thank you. Nate and Joe, it's been good to be together again. This has been the podcast for Cultural Reformation, reminding you that from him and through him and to him are all things. May God alone be glorified. And we'll see you next week.